And uh, so, this guy is being dismissed, but I mean, it's going to be, uh, you know, the firm gave him his two-week notice or his month notice or whatever. He's going to serve out however long, you know, working, and then he's going to, to, to leave. And so that's put him in kind of a difficult position. You know, he starts thinking about, what am I going to do? You know, I mean, that's my job, I'm getting fired. You know, they probably didn't have unemployment. So what do you do in that situation? And he sizes things up, and he realizes, you know, I'm, this has been a white-collar job, you know. I, I don't have the stamina for hard manual labor. You know, I don't think that's a good option for me, you know. And he's not really interested in trying to beg. Uh, you know, what's he going to do? And he hits upon a plan. Now, this is kind of ingenious. What does he do? Embezzlement. <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> he doesn't actually take any money for himself. Yeah. But what does he do? He reduces the other people's debts. To the <laughs> owner. Master. Well, how did that help him? Now those people like him. They like him. <laughs> and they're kind of indebted to him. I guess he could uh, reveal what he'd done if he had to and uh, put them in a world of hurt. So, uh, Did he have the ability to do that? Well, he obviously did. He had control of the books at that point. Okay. So he doctors the books, and he tells them to doctor their, their records. Okay. And so, yeah. I mean, it looks like mm-hmm. now on the books that they only owe so much when they really owed several times that much. We usually, in accounting, we say... You should have a different person authorize the transaction, a different person record it, and a different person actually have control of those things. So this guy's all three. Not a great <laughs> man. Nobody can yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. see that. Uh, here's a guy who tried to feather his nest by plucking his master. Uh, so and and it's just like okay, he's going to have places to go, people that are going to owe him something when he gets out, and he'll be able to use that. Now, you know. The thing that's disconcerting about this is, uh, how is this a good example? <laughs> you ever notice how Jesus tends to use some rather uh, unusual things? I mean, Jesus is, uh, in one passage, tells you how to rob a strong man's house and, uh, you know, uses a thief in the night and uh, so forth and so on. This doesn't seem like an exemplary <laughs> character. And yet, verse 8 his master praised the unrighteous steward because he'd acted shrewdly. So he actually is commended here. Uh, perhaps this is the Lord who's praising him, but that makes it almost worse. How could you praise a guy who does this? Well, what he says is, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now, do you understand what he's saying by that? Worldly people, are sharper about getting their goal than God's people about getting theirs. Or the world is better served by its servants than God is by his. You know, so worldly people are going after a worldly fortune. A lot of times they're a lot harder working and a lot more um, shrewd about how to get their earthly fortune than Christians are about gaining their heavenly future. So it's not like they're going after the same thing or using the same methods, but but there's a sense in which this, you know, unjust steward shows some qualities that would be really smart for us to have in gaining our heavenly reward. 
you understand that basic idea? I think that's the idea. You gotta remember they're more shrewd in relationship to their own kind or their own generation. The idea is, okay, their goal is totally different and they're gonna do things dishonest, but but they are they are showing some qualities that we need. Think about what they are. Foresight. You know, here's a guy who knows it's gonna be a short time till he's dismissed, and he better take advantage of his position right now to prepare for his future. Isn't that our situation? We are around this planet for a short time. We better take advantage of that time to prepare for our future. You know, we say we know there's going to be a drastic change in our environment. Well, when worldly people know that, they prepare. They, they do whatever it takes. We need to be more looking forward and preparing. Think about this. <coughs> he was realistic. He sized up his situation. He didn't whimper and whine and daydream. He faced the facts and got to work. You know, many are like, oh, it's just so hard to serve God. Oh, it's just, I don't know. I just, I don't think I can do it. And, you know, face the reality and do it. You know, God will just understand that I just can't do what he wants me to. What if this guy said, I, I, I don't know, I just, I'm just not going to be able to take care of myself. He just starved to death. You know, we got to be tough enough to face the reality. Okay, some things are hard, but that's what God asked. He was prompt. He acted at once, decisively. He seized the opportunity. You know, I mean, he didn't wait around for the last few hours he was going to be on the job. He knew he had no time to waste. He got busy doing what he needed to do. That's what we need to do. And then think about his zeal. That's maybe the most impressive thing. How many of his master's debtors did he call, debtors did he call in? Each one. Each one. Don't you think he could have gotten by with just a few of them? Like saying, well, how much money do you want to make? Well, couldn't you get by with less? You know, they offer you a raise at work, and you're like, no, I think I can do it with what I've got now. You ever say that? You know, they offer you more money for something, and, well, no, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. Well, normally, we want to do as well as we can. You know, he, he doesn't want to just get by when he gets out. He wants a lot of people owing him a lot. You know, so he does that very diligently. We do that with everything else. We put a lot into it because we realize we want to get a lot out of it. We do that with worldly things. Worldly people do that with worldly things. You think about people who want to advance in athletics, you know, who really work hard because they want to get good. <clears throat> if you care about getting good, you don't do the minimum possible. You want to know what's, how can I do more? You know, so that's, so I think it's that idea. That given his goal, he had more foresight, more realism, more promptness, more zeal for his goal than we do for ours. That's the broad outline of what I think he's saying. Your observation. Go ahead. I think this points out what I was saying about the other parable. How far can you? How far can you push the parable? In other words, I mean. You know, because we look, sometimes we look at a parable and we think, oh, we go to every little detail and, oh, we need to be like this person and this is, okay, well, I want to be like the unrighteous steward, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how far can you go with that? Now, I think, I, I, I mean, I agree completely with your, you know, conclusion of that and what we do, but we can't go so far as to say, well, I'm going to go down tomorrow at work, I'm <laughs> going to go tell my, um, uh, you know, debtors to my boss that they don't owe it as much. So we've got to take 
you know, the lesson he gives us from it. You know, they're more shrewd in relationship they're of their own kind. Exactly. And and understand the point. Yeah. In every parable. I sure. mean that's that's I guess. Sure. And so I mean it's a matter of you know, you're always in the question of what details in the parable have a specific application and what details in the parable are just setting the scene. I think it's a question for us in every parable. Right. I mean, even later on, he'll use the unrighteous judge. And in the parable, that is God. You know, that's, you know what I'm saying? So, obviously, we're not making that comparison with the unrighteousness, but he's saying, if even an unrighteous judge right. will grant your request, what do you think your Father in Heaven would right. do? He's always making a contrast in that one, but yes. Exactly, but but in that story, it's the one asking and the one giving, and right. we need to be the one asking, and he's the one giving. So we're always going to have to look at him in context. We're always, always going to have to try to see, okay, what is what is the point they're making, and as we look at details, make sure they that our interpretation of them fits the point, fits the context, not something that goes contrary to what's being said. Uh, that, but that is a challenge, and you know. Uh, trying to understand how far can we go. Um, but here it looks to me like it's the overall, um, you know, methods, you know, the realism and the forward-lookingness and the zeal and diligence and things like that that's being commended in connection with their worldly people's goal. You had something to say. Sorry. To me, I think this parable kind of points out the reasoning behind the reaction in the previous parable of the father. It's like the ultimate goal is to try to bring his son back. And the older brother is kind of thinking about other things besides that, kind of getting distracted almost. Whereas the Father is saying, no, like, I understand what's most important, and this thing has happened, and I'm overly joyful about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good point. Sir. This also sort of reminded me of the previous parable in the sense that the younger son didn't act shrewdly when he had money. And, I mean, he didn't prepare for the possible famine and, and all of that but I was thinking you know what if the father had said to him now I want an accounting from you about how you spent you know the third of the estate that you ran off with and that would be kind of interesting too but <laughs> yeah. it just it did that second part didn't go anywhere but the first part you know he <laughs> wasn't he wasn't shrewd in a world that's true so. he wasn't thinking about the farther future Right. The other part of this, you know, just reading some different commentary on it or whatever, trying to make a big deal out of whether he actually did something wrong or whether he was just accused. But I think that Doesn't it has matter. nothing to do with the story. Right. I think the overall thing is, here's your situation. Are you going to prepare for what's coming? Yeah, it's the same regardless of the reason he's fired. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I don't think that matters. Yeah, well, he's trying. They're trying to make him out to be like he did a good thing because 
because some reason these people weren't going to be able to pay, but he reduced it. Now they're now the master's receiving some payment instead of nothing, and making him out to be a good person. Yeah. No, in the story, he's not. <laughs> Those are the right commentaries. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> I was going to say, what version were they? No, there are some people who say that. That is, that's, that's right. They try to make him out to be a good because mm-hmm. he's praised, so therefore he has mm-hmm. to be a good guy. You know, it says specifically that it praises the unrighteous man. <laughs> I know. Pronounce like, <laughs> <laughs> that little word. But you have to remember, a lot of these commentators have had to get their doctor's degrees by coming up with some angle on something that nobody else has ever come up with before. <laughs> and the best way to find an angle like that is one that isn't true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how are you going to sell your commentary if you say the same thing everybody else did? That's right. So. <laughs> yeah. How did the master find out what he had done? There's no well, indication, again, I guess. Again, I, I think verse 8 you know, it's it's the either his master or his lord in my margin. I'm not so sure this is like the owner. I think this may have been the Lord himself, God, who praised him in the context of the story. Yes. I, if if not, then I don't know that it really matters how he found out, and he would just become you know amazed at how shrewd he was. Certainly not as the Vikings fleeced him. And if he found out, he may have been able to come back on him, so uh, maybe it wasn't so sharp. So I, I, I think, for me, it makes a little more sense to make this God crazy. Not even sheep like to be fleeced. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, isn't it amazing how, going back to my our points, think about the zeal, you know, and the effort. And, and like, I mean, we... We, we, we think of it as totally reasonable to go to very great strenuous lengths for earthly goals. Athletic, financial, educational, you know, even sometimes for a hospital, you know, something like that, for political office. You know, people just, I mean, they'll exhaust themselves, they'll spend all kinds of money, they'll do things that are really hard, they'll be just passionate and single-focused. And everybody thinks that's cool, what dedication, what, you know, whatever. But let anybody have even a fifth of that kind of dedication toward the Lord and they're religious fanatics and they're kooky and they're emotionally unstable and, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, it's amazing. You know, the reason they feel that way is because they don't see that future goal. But if they understood the future goal, wow, we ought to be putting way more effort into it than people are for their you know, earthly crown of withered vegetables or whatever, to borrow the uh, analogy from Bushman is not. So, I mean, I just think, you know, some of these analogies can help us. I mean, you know, you think about, we've got a guy at church who's about to start his last year before he actually becomes a real doctor. And man, it's been so strenuous. And this next month, uh, he's going to be training the interns. He'll be working 24-hour shifts. And he's like, wow, I mean, that's just ridiculous. And he's responsible for them messing up. So he's got to shadow them. they got to do it, but he's got to watch them make sure they don't, you know, kill somebody. Uh, and, yeah, it's like, wow. And it's been like, I mean, it's been difficult for years. 
and just just stressful and just exhausted. And you're going to become a doctor. You know, makes sense. You know, why not? You know, you get to have, you know, help people, you get to make a lot of money, whatever it is your motivation is. And we understand that. Everybody thinks that's cool. That's reasonable. And you respect doctors. It's probably one of the most respected professions. And, you know, what it takes to get there really shows you've got what it takes. We see that with that. Why don't we see that with the Lord? Why Why are we so, you know, well, you shouldn't work so hard. Well, you just shouldn't, you know, don't don't get carried away with this. You know, it's not, don't, don't. Why? You know, why shouldn't we be even more passionate about the Lord? I just think some of those questions you know, are helpful and just kind of, uh, I don't know, reassessing how we see uh, our commitment to the Lord. <clears throat> Other things about all this? It's like trying to win the world championship of Xbox or something. Like, there aren't a lot of people <laughs> who are going to give you a lot of praise for that, you know? <laughs> or, like, this as well. It's not like you're going after, like, like the NBA championship or the Uber Bowl or something like that to where like everybody's going to think that you're awesome. <coughs> you know, it gets hard sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, we're not going to be understood because right. they don't see what our goal is. Sarah? I noticed that, so to one guy he said, cut your bill in half. And the other one was like, you know, take, take 20% off. And I just wonder if that's, there could be a lesson in there that as we approach each one of these people to talk to them um, that we need to make it an individualized approach I mean not in what we're offering them in terms of a discount but kind of just looking at it in this guy we can cut his bill by 50% you know so this person, I need to talk to him in this language and, you know, show him this, this is what's going on. Well, this person over here, I'm going to have to start a couple chapters back before we can get. Yeah, I would see this as more just the imagery of prayer. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure there's an analogy there, but more just like, you know, they're just giving some examples to try and give us the idea of what he was doing. But I think he, this and even the previous ones, I think really point out the the disconnect in the value of what the goals, you know, like with the prodigal son, the real value was the lost soul. And here, you know, who cares what people paid and what they lost and, you know, but he's using that, you see how much trouble you went to just for your, for your earthly well-being? The, the real value is in the eternal being, and the, and the previous three parables are the same, I think the same thing, saying Definitely. there's no value. Yeah. Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, let's. He's got some other lessons. I think to, the way I look at this, verse 8 is the primary point of the parable, but while he's at it, let's get some other things in here that uh, would be useful. So 9 to 13. Then I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwelling. He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Okay, so there's a lesson on the use of wealth in 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Here's a guy who's got temporary use of his master's funds. He's about to be discharged, so he uses these funds to provide for his future. We have temporary use of our master's funds. We're soon going to be discharged. We ought to use them to provide for our future. The idea of laying up treasures in heaven, to use our worldly goods to provide for our heavenly home, being generous, not hoarding, being unselfish. You know, because God's going to look at us on the basis of how we have employed the resources that belong to him, which all everything we've got belongs to God. And whether or not we've been generous. Uh, this guy was generous with his master's resources. <laughs> Might be somewhat against his master's best interest. But, but we need to be generous with our master's uh, resources because that's exactly what he wants us to do. And then there's a lesson on faithfulness in verses 10 to 12. I mean, you're faithful in little, you're faithful in, you're faithful in much. Um, you know, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And the idea is, we, we, what we do now in small things shows our character. Think about hiring a new guy in a sensitive position. It's pretty important. You're going to give him the most critical and, and uh, consequential job there is the first uh, day or two at work? I think not. You're going to give him something that doesn't matter if he messes it up. The first few times you give him something to do and just see if he can handle it. Is he capable? Is he responsible? Is he punctual? Is he, you know, whatever? Does he know what he's doing? Uh, and we may say, well, this is such a menial task, I'll just blow it off. Well, who's ever going to give you anything more important to do if you can't prove you can do the little one? And so what we've got now is pretty small. And we think, ah, it's a small deal, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's only a little sin. You know what? Well, we're being tested with it in the little ways we're being tested now uh, to, to determine, you know, whether or not we can be trusted with more and can be brought into our heavenly dwelling. So I think that's interesting. And then finally in 13, you've got to make a choice. You can't serve God and, and, and mammon and money well. And so he comes back to make sure we don't miss the point. He's not, you know, the story is not to say we're supposed to do everything we can to get money. <coughs> money can't be our master. God's an exclusive master, and he's got to have first born. Thoughts and comments? In um, verse 12, when he says, if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Um, what is another man's? Is that like our earthly things that we have, but they're really God's? Yeah, I think okay. it is. Yeah. Exactly. You re explain verse 9. So, <clears throat> I think we need to use what the wealth we have to, in a way that provides a home in heaven for us. So, he's referring <clears throat> to the wealth we have as wealth of unrighteousness? Yes, I think so. You know, it's not, this is not. Um, you know, holy stuff, but how we use even the unrighteous man, how we use the wealth that's not, this is not heavenly stuff or anything, 
But it's how we use that determines whether or not we'll be in heaven. This is kind of a wacky translation, but the New Living says, Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Yeah, that's good. Alright, uh, how about this little section in between the two parables, 14 to 18. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since then the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Well, now we learn some things about the Pharisees. They were lovers of money. I think there's a reason why Jesus is teaching parables about rich men in the presence of the Pharisees. And, uh, you know, is it good to be a lover of money? No. The Bible condemns that in several passages. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 talks about that. Uh, you know, among other things, in that long list of sins, you know, people were lovers of money. Uh, rather than, uh, they were lovers of self, lovers of money, and just goes on right on through. And uh, that's not something that's good. Uh, so, but they were. And so they were just kind of scoffing at Jesus. You know, isn't that a typical reaction when our toes get stepped on? It's kind of laugh it off. You know, ah, that was, you know, bunk. Um, and then he says, you are those who justify yourselves on the side of man. But God knows the hearts, for what's highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. We are too concerned about what people think. Too concerned about our image, men's opinion. Doesn't matter. God's values are often not anything close to what men's are anyway. Quit thinking about what men are thinking about you. Now that's hard to do. We are so controlled by trying to impress or not be rejected or be accepted or whatever. And he says, you're just thinking about that. They were trying to impress people with their religiousness, if we're talking about the Pharisees here. So they've got to stop that. And then he talks about the law of the prophets were proclaimed until John, but since then it's been the gospel of the kingdom. You know, the coming of Jesus was kind of a watershed. You know, it was kind of a decisive moment. You know, until John, the law of the prophets, from here on out, you know, the kingdom presses on everybody to enter it. Um, and, but even at that, the law must be fulfilled, that we can't just overturn the laws for our convenience. For example, one of the laws they messed up with a lot, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's an example of a law they weren't following, and they should have been. And of course, Jesus' teaching on that is, Divorce is wrong, and remarriage is adultery, and that's not very popular. Wasn't then, won't, isn't that? Um, so, so he's accusing, he's talking about them being lovers of money, they're being unjust when it's all said and done, you know, justifying themselves on the side of men, they're disregarding the law and divorcing and remarrying and thereby committing adultery. Now, when you look at that list, 
I want you to come over to chapter 18 and verse 11. Remember that Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray? Well, would you get a load of what the Pharisee says in verse 11? 18.11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, what do we know about the Pharisees? Lovers of money, unjust, and adulterers. You know, the very things he was biting himself on not being is what, from this text earlier, we see that the Pharisees often were. So, that it, it's so hard for us sometimes to see ourselves in our true condition. Sometimes we will pride ourselves on not being the very thing we are. It's amazing. You watch that. Every once in a while, people will just like, really? You know, somebody who say, you know, I just, I just don't have a problem with my temper at all. I'm just so self-controlled. Like, Whoa. <laughs> you really think that? You know, or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's easy for us to blind ourselves to our true faults. Maybe it's that we don't want to admit them. You and try to convince yourself. Yes. Yes, exactly. So sometimes we're almost trying to keep saying, I'm not at all what I really am, trying to convince ourselves or make sure nobody else detects uh, who we really are. I just thought that was kind of interesting. So that's, that's kind of the, the middle between these two stories. Do you have a comment or question, thoughts on 14 to 18? Pharisee got one out of four, right? He wasn't like the text guy. No, he wasn't. That's true. <laughs> not at all. Part of me wonders that, you know, the Pharisees were scoffing at Jesus. And it's almost like they're saying, Ha, you don't know what it's like to have money. So, of course, you don't understand how money works. It could be. Kind of thing. Could be. Yeah, I mean, you, you, we always want to justify ourselves. Whatever it is we're weekend, you know, trying to come up with a way of justifying it, trying to laugh off the criticisms and all that kind of stuff. This is a complete tangent, but mm-hmm. I thought there were three categories. The law, the prophets, and the... Writing? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes, in some mm-hmm. cases, but sometimes just law and prophets. Okay. But yeah, the law of prophets and the writing. Like the Psalms. And stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, sometimes it's the law and prophets and the Psalms. Either. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, let's just say a couple things about this next story. We won't really try to get into it. Uh, but, you know, one of the, uh, one of the biggest questions, which probably doesn't matter a whole lot, is whether or not the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable or not. It is. Look at the beginning. Now, there was a rich man. Look at 16.1. There was a rich man. Look back at 10.30. The Good Samaritan. Uh, a man was going down. Uh, look at 14.16. We're just looking at the beginning of the parable. Mm-hmm. A man was giving. Or look at uh, 15.11. Um, a man had. Or look at 19.12. A noble man went. You know, that kind of a beginning. A man did this, or there was a man. You know, that's a Terrible introduction. I'm not saying there's never a case where that introduces something that's not 
But that is a typical thing, especially in this chapter. I realize it wasn't written in chapters, but especially in close proximity to this other one that starts the same way. There was a rich man. It just seems difficult to, to take this any other way. Um, this is not, this is then Jesus illustrating lessons by the story about the rich man and Lazarus. It's not a historical event. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't represent truth. I think it clearly does. And Jesus is going to really push several points in this story of teaching lessons that we need based upon the story he tells. But I do believe that it's difficult when when it starts that way. I think it's difficult not to see that it's in parallel with the other parables. So I thought I could say that in three minutes. Do you have a comment or question about that or disagree with me? Welcome to present the other side. All right. Well, I won't be here next week. Probably the next week. Let's leave that a little tentative, and then I won't be there the two weeks after that. So. Stop.